I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this evening. As uh, Brother Tony said, I've uh, been in Hebron for 15 years. Uh, we'll be beginning the work with the Morrison Congregation on July 23rd. That will be my first official Sunday. And uh, I hope that you'll keep the Hebron Congregation uh, in mind and in your prayers as they transition and, and uh, seek a new preacher. They've tried out some folks. Uh, it's a good congregation. We leave on good terms. And uh, I just kind of want to make that known to everyone. And uh, I pray for us as we begin the Morrison work. Some great folks there. As Hebron has tried out people, we've attended and visited with Morrison and have been able to get to know the people a little bit before we start there uh, in just a little while. <clears throat> I'm sorry that I was uh, a little bit later than I intended to be. Usually I try to get here a little early, you know. Uh, Tony and others who preach, Steve and others know with PowerPoint, you want to get here early, make sure everything works and... And then I have time to talk to folks and get to know everybody and, and get to reacquaint myself with people I already know. And Well, at 4.30, our kids got on a gator with their aunt and headed to the creek. And uh, Danielle kept looking at me and saying, I don't know when they're going to be back. I don't know when they're going to be back. And here's 5.15, and, you know, we're supposed to be getting ready and leaving very soon. And, you know, the kids aren't there. <laughs> And uh, so, needless to say, we were behind just a hair bit, um, but uh, I appreciate everyone uh, nonetheless and hope that I can talk to you a little bit afterwards, and that would be good. Hopefully my voice will hold up. I've had some sort of drainage issue, and I hope that things will uh, go okay for that. This is my topic, right? <clears throat> so, you know, Tony's very uh, together and organized, and so he calls very, you know, early in the process and says, hey, you know... It's 2008 and 2017, can you speak, no, not that early, but uh, he says, you know, last year sometime, can you, can you speak for us in 2017? He said, sure, I put it in my phone, and I assume he told me the topic, because when I looked at it just a month or so ago to kind of confirm what was going on in the summer, it said, Jesus teaches in parables. That was in the notes. And so I said, I assume that's the topic. And so I'm going to prepare as if that's the topic. I have, and I don't know if other preachers have this recurring dream where I'm sitting on the front pew preparing to speak. And, you know, Tony or somebody's up there introducing you and they, they call out your topic and you gasp because you are not the bit prepared for that topic. You know, and, and you literally have seconds. And in those seconds, you're trying to say, what can I get together? You know, oh, I'm speaking on parables. Let me, you know, and you start thumbing through your Bible. That, that It's almost the going unclothed in public dream for everyone else. The preacher's dream is I'm at the front pew speaking at a visit, visiting at a congregation about to speak and I have no clue what my topic is. So this is what I'm supposed to speak on. Jesus teaches in parables. Uh, in our vacation Bible school, we uh, studied some parables just a few weeks ago. And so much of what we're going to talk about was fresh on my mind. Anyway, uh, if you ask just the general public, what, it, what do they know most about Jesus' instruction? Well, the parables will come up a lot. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the Golden Rule, but the parables will also <clears throat> come up a good bit. But I think what people fail to understand is the parables reveal an aspect of Jesus' teaching that's not altogether pleasant. And some of the things we're going to talk about this evening uh, that we learn from the parables of Jesus are things that remind us just how important and vital it is to accept the message of the gospel and the consequences if and when we do not accept the message of the gospel. That's really at the heart 
of Jesus' teaching in parables and why He did it, His motivation for it, what He hoped to, to accomplish by teaching in parables. And so what we're going to talk about are just, just a few questions as it relates to Jesus speaking in parables. The first is simply what? What are parables? Now, now this is elementary level stuff for most of us who have been in the church for any number of years. Uh, when we think about a parable, and we talked about this uh, when the, the young people came back from vacation Bible school and they sat down in the pews, one of the things I asked them on that first night was, can somebody tell me what a parable is? And several raised their hand and they gave the definition that's there on the bottom of your screen. It's a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that, that really is what a parable is. If you want an inspired definition, Mark 4 and verse 30, uh, Jesus said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison, the ESV and others say, by what parable shall we compare it? The word parable, the Greek word uh, parabole, which just transliterated into the English for parable, means to lay beside. So what you're doing is you're taking uh, an earthly message. You're taking something we all know about. And we're laying it beside something that's much more important and much more spiritual in nature. You think about the parable of the soils. It, it, probably within uh, eyesight of Jesus as He's instructing are fields of grain. When Jesus then talked about the four kinds of soil, when He talked about the road that went by the field, when He talked about the thorns, and He talked about the rocks, and He talked about the good soil, it was something that His audience was intimately familiar with. And so you have an earthly message, you have something with which people are familiar, and you lay it beside something that has a deeper and more spiritual, a higher meaning. That's what a parable is. The word parable and the Greek word that's translated parable is, is seen all throughout the New Testament. Just a few instances. You can turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 9. and uh, There we have uh, a translation in the King James, at least, of this word parable, uh, that's not the normal translation of parable as we see it. Uh, Hebrews 9 and verse 9, uh, verse 8 says, the Holy Ghost signifying the way of the holiest. He's talking about the design of the tabernacle and how that's representative of what he's going to talk about, the new covenant. And in verse 9 he said, which was a figure for the time then present. The word figure there is the same word translated parable. It's a figure, it's a metaphor, it's an illustration, it's an example of what he was trying to get across. Hebrews 11 and verse 19, you see uh, the same thing said, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence he also received him in a figure, in a, a parable, an illustration, a metaphor, if you will. Uh, the book of Hebrews frequently uses types and shadows, that is, there's the type and the anti-type, the, the thing and what it represents in the New Testament. And that is one way in which the word that's translated parable is used. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 23, Jesus references what they will begin to say in time as a proverb, a saying that goes into the common vernacular of the people. But then 46 times in the New Testament, by far more often than any other translation of the word, it's translated as parable. A parable then is an earthly message used to illustrate a heavenly meaning. A parable is simply an illustration. But I said simply an illustration. You ever tried to come up with a parable on the fly? You know, I'm a, I'm a father. And you know, in all these 
especially the good sitcoms, which are the ones, you know, where they've got, actually got a father in the household who's not an idiot, and, you know, he actually can string a sentence together, and he doesn't lie, cheat, and steal every day. You know, the good fathers, right? They get their sons together, and they say, Timmy, I've got a story to tell you. And they tell him this long, drawn-out story, and he comes back, and there's the point at the end, you know, kind of an Andy Griffith-type scenario. You ever try to do that in, in real life? You know, and, and halfway through, you realize you're referencing something from the 80s that your kids have never experienced. And they're looking at you like you have no idea. You're not even speaking in English. And the illustration just falls flat on its face. As a preacher, sometimes you, you go off the cuff and you try to say, oh, here's a perfect illustration. And, and you say it, and people look at you and say, I don't have a clue what you're saying. But the reason I say that is for this reason. Jesus utilized teaching in parables on a regular basis. And He did it with such precision, such accuracy, and such uh, capabilities that it really does stagger the mind. I know people, my wife says I can't even get through a joke properly. I know, and I don't, I hate to, to stereotype young ladies, but I'll have young ladies in my class at school and they'll try to tell a long and drawn out joke and about halfway through they forget what the punchline is. Oh, I don't even know where I was going with that but it was really funny. And yet you have Jesus who not only can construct a parable seemingly on the fly, but He can design it for the specific audience that's listening for a specific purpose with a specific goal in mind. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, which is really about the elder son, but also talks about a forgiving father. And the richness and the depth of these illustrations and these, these metaphors, these parables, is beyond anything that you or I could do on the fly on a regular basis. And yet Jesus did it over and over and over again. Jesus' teaching in parables is just one illustration of His power as an orator, as a teacher, come from God. Now it's no mistake that they said, this man doesn't speak like the scribes and Pharisees. He speaks as one who has authority. And the parables is an illustration of Him doing that. Speaking with such depth and capability. The use of parables is a great illustration of that one fact. So that's what a parable is. And most of you probably already knew that very well. When? When did Jesus use parables? Jesus, the first part of His ministry wasn't saturated with parables to the extent that the latter portion of His ministry was. Um, of course, Jesus was... Uh, was baptized um, in the Jordan River. He spent some time in that area. Went to Galilee. Then, of course, we understand he came back at least on one occasion for the Passover feast, turned over the, the tables of the money changers, and then back to Galilee. And there he finished selecting his disciples. And, and it's really difficult to place a, a, an exact chronology on when Jesus did what in the Gospel accounts. To harmonize the Gospels chronologically is a very broad undertaking and one that that would take many years to do and lots of study. But it seems as if Jesus' teaching in parables came somewhat late in His Galilean ministry as He was kind of going around the region of Galilee a second time. And that's really important because we need to set the stage here for what's going on about this time. The longer Jesus preached and taught and performed miracles the more the scribes and Pharisees and Jewish leaders tried to entrap Him and were, were in chase 
and doing what they could to try to capture him and kill him, or at least find a way to accuse him. And we're just going to go through a few passages, and you can start with me in Matthew chapter 12, and we're just going to kind of walk through a few passages, and, and you can follow along, that would be great, or you can listen along and, and get the idea of what we're talking about here. This is Matthew chapter 12, just prior to Jesus really beginning in earnest to speak in parables in chapter 13, verse 12, or chapter 12 and verse 2, when the Pharisees saw him do what? Uh, they saw his disciples pluck corn, and oh, they just had a fit about how that was a violation of the Sabbath. Uh, to the rabbis, this was one of the most egregious violations of the Sabbath day you could do because it was every aspect of farming all captured in one. You know, they were, they were uh, reaping, uh, they were threshing, you know, they were sorting and winnowing, and then they were eating. Oh, man, this is just, this is a horrible violation of the Sabbath law. And, of course, we understand with common sense that that's not it at all. But notice verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. And, and it starts to ramp up. Verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. Notice how this is escalating and elevating. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Jesus is going to famously uh, say that, that that was you know, uh, an unpardonable sin. And there's much to do about how Jesus described that in verse 32. But the point is, they rejected the only means to salvation. If you reject the only means to salvation, what's going to happen? not going to be saved. And that's plainly and simply what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 20, chapter 12. And there in verse 24 when they said, He's casting out devils by, the, by Satan, the prince of the devils. So you see their attitudes changing for the worse, it seems, minute by minute. Verse 38, certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign. You can't take anything the Pharisees and scribes asked or said to Jesus at heart, and at face value. And you see, there was always an ulterior motive. There was always something behind what they said and why they said it. You jump ahead in Luke's account in Luke chapter 10, and you see a similar thing. And again, in the context of, of speaking in parables at large, verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Tempting him. They're amping up their desire to entrap him, to tempt him, to find some way to have some accusation against him. Chapter 15. Of course, one of the best known parables there, uh, beginning in verse 11, of the prodigal son. And in verse 2, we have a very similar accusation to Matthew 12. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, murmured saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. It's no coincidence that as the persecution and the negativity from the scribes and Pharisees increased, Jesus' use of parables increased. That's not a coincidence. In fact, after Jesus speaks in parables in a few rounds, chapter 21 and verse 45 tells us the chief priests, when they heard these parables, they perceived that He spake of them. Jesus used parables at its most basic to get to those Jewish leaders who were opposing Him. Now there were some positive 
ramifications of speaking in parables as well. But by and large, Jesus' purpose for using parables was to lay at the feet the truths that He wanted those Jewish leaders to know. And let's keep that in mind as we ask our next question. Why? And this is really one of the most vital questions as it relates to speaking in parables. And this is where we run into some truths that, that really aren't very convenient for our modern minds and our modern conceptions of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, the first reason is it was prophesied that He would do so. You go back to Psalm 78 and verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. In Matthew 13, uh, Jesus alludes, doesn't quote directly, but alludes to that idea in verses 34 and 35. And so we have a situation where it was prophesied that Jesus would use parables in His instruction, and He absolutely does it. But here is the primary reason, in my estimation, why Jesus spoke in parables. And it was two sides of the same coin. To open the eyes of those who wanted to receive His message and to close the eyes of those who did not. Now, if you listened closely to what I said, you might be surprised. You mean to tell me that Jesus desired for the eyes of those who didn't want to hear His message to be closed? And if you're going to state that, what do you mean by that? That's really one of the most difficult questions to answer as it relates to the parables. And that's what we're going to try to do now. But we can't deny that that's why he spoke to them in parables. I'd like you to turn this evening to Matthew chapter 13. And, and this is, of course, one of the main texts as it relates to parables. Many, many parables are spoken in Matthew 13, beginning with the parable of the soils. But I'd like you to begin in verse 10. The disciples came and they said unto Him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? So if we want to know why Jesus spoke in parables, what better way to get an answer than to find out what Jesus answered them? Well, here's what He says. Now pick up in verse 11. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. And then notice verse 12. This is the first difficult aspect in terms of understanding that we run into as it relates to parables. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Why did Jesus speak in parables? So that those who have can have more, so that those who don't have can have less. Okay, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus is in the business of finding people who don't have a lot and just stripping them of what they have? Does that sound very Christ-like as we know Jesus? We're not talking about financial things or physical things. What are we talking about? It's interesting, if you hold your finger there and go to Luke chapter 8, Luke gives a very similar statement but there's a little bit more information given. In verse 18 of Luke chapter 8, and if you write in your Bibles, it might already be in the margin, but if not, out beside Matthew 13, 11, and 12, just, just write out Luke 8 and verse 18. Take heed therefore how you hear, for whosoever hath to him shall be given. That's much like what we just read, correct? And whosoever hath not from him shall be taken even that. And notice what is added here even that which he seemeth to have. Here's what I believe Jesus is getting at. These scribes and Pharisees were believed to have all the knowledge. 
all of the understanding, all of the religious authority. And oh, if a Pharisee says it or does it, oh, we can take it to the bank, but that's what God expects out of us. But the problem is they had all of this authority and they had all of this opportunity to know God's Word and yet they were not putting it into practice in their own lives. And so what they had, they weren't using. It was as if they didn't have it at all. And Jesus says, Pharisees and scribes, if you're not going to use what you have, I'm going to take it away from you. And I'm going to give it to these publicans and these sinners. These people who you say don't have an opportunity. And the opportunity that you reject, I'm going to give to them. You see, and that's at the heart of Jesus' teaching in parables. He's taking the message, the core messages of the Gospel, and He's laying it at the feet of those who earnestly desire to hear it. And in so doing, He's ripping it from the hands of those who have taken advantage of it for centuries and not applied it to their own lives. Because they have, but don't use. I'm going to take it away from them. And these people who have been struggling in darkness because the scribes and Pharisees wouldn't extend God's Word to them. I'm going to take it to them. Because the sick need a physician. And that's what Jesus was going to do. Number two, let's keep reading here in verse 13. And this was read just a moment ago in the opening uh, uh, Scripture reading. Therefore speak out of them in parables, because they seeing, see not, hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, that's Isaiah 6, which saith, By hearing you shall hear, shall not understand, seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, should understand with their heart, be converted, and I shall heal them. So Jesus wants people who are blind to keep being blind. Jesus wants people who are deaf to keep being deaf. Obviously not. Is Jesus saying here, I don't want these people to have an opportunity for salvation. I don't want the scribes and Pharisees to to have a chance to be saved. He's not saying that. In fact, you can go to John chapter 12. And again, we see a parallel statement only with more information given. And I hope you're following along with me and I hope you're, uh, you're bringing all of this together. Verse 39. You'll find familiar what I read beginning in verse 39. Therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart. They should not see with their eyes, understand with their heart, be converted and I could heal them. That's again Isaiah 6. Same passage being quoted. In verse 41, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now I want you to notice what happens next in verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on Him. Did His message have an effect on them? These Jewish rulers, these scribes and Pharisees, these these ones in positions of power and authority who seemed to have, did He have an effect on them? Yes. But I want you to keep reading in verse 42. Nevertheless, also among the chief rulers, many believed on Him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Here's what happens. When Jesus laid the the parables at the feet of the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, and all of the Jewish leaders of the day, they were forced to make a choice. Am I going to follow it? Am I going to reject it? And Jesus forced their hands by the parables. Remember Matthew 21, 45? 
they perceived that He spoke of them. And He forced their hand to accept it. And when they were backed into a corner, many of them rejected the message. Not because Jesus wanted them to reject it, but because they made that choice and that decision. But on a positive note, it was Jesus' hope that those who desired earnestly to hear God's message could hear it. I'd like you to go back to Matthew chapter 12, and here, uh, as you pick back up, you'll notice Jesus talking to His disciples, the ones who are listening intently. <coughs> as you pick up in Matthew chapter 13, rather, <clears throat> verse 16 says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see, have not seen them. To hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. That latter part reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 1, in which Peter said, the prophets desired to look into these things. The angels have desired earnestly to look into these things. The prophets were searching what or what manner of time the, the Spirit which was in them did testify. He says, you have generations of people who have been earnestly waiting on the edge of their seat. Imagine Abraham watching all these events unfold and saying, I had a part. I had a part in God's scheme of redemption. Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, looking down from heaven and saying, I had a part in progressing the saving message of God. And Jesus looks at His disciples and, and, and He says, as if He was looking them in the eye, He says, you have the opportunity that all of these people in history have been waiting for. And you're blessed because of it. If your hearts are open, what a blessing it is to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear Him speak in parables. You know, it's interesting, this opens up a, a study of many interesting passages in the New Testament. Does God desire for men to be lost? Well, the, the, the simple answer to that is no. I remember when I first moved into this area, uh, Lane Dix uh, was even more intimidating then to me than he is now. He's not intimidating at all to me now. But he was then. And he talked about how he and some friends of his practiced body slam evangelism. And he was joking I can only imagine what body slam evangelism is. You, know, you take somebody from the street, you throw them over your shoulder, chunk them in the baptistry. They try to resist, you give them the elbow off the top rope. You know, I can only imagine what body slam evangelism is. But here's what, why I say that. God doesn't practice body slam evangelism. He's not going to force you and force me to do what we know we need to do. And the parables are a great illustration of that. Jesus wasn't going to take these Pharisees by the collar and say, you will do what I want you to do. You will obey me. If they choose not to, He's not going to make them. And in fact, the parables were their way out. Just as in John chapter 6, when Jesus gave an easy illustration about people needing to eat His flesh and drink His blood, and people walked away saying, He wants us to be cannibals. No sane person would leave that discussion in John 6 and think, Jesus wants us to be cannibals. That's what they wanted to believe because they wanted to reject His message. And the parables accomplished the exact same purpose. Jesus desired their salvation, but they did not. 
And the parables were their way. In Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 26, it says, God gave them up their vile affections. Does God give up on people when they sin? How many of us are great illustrations to the contrary? God doesn't give up on people just because they sin. But will God give up on a society that proves itself too lewd to accept and maintain the gospel? He most certainly will, and He's done it in the past. Will there come a time when God's patience wears thin? Yes. Will God force that lewd society to change? Or will He simply leave them to their own devices? It's a great question in many respects for our society today. But in Romans chapter 1, it described the Gentile world. You move a little bit farther along in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we find out who's behind it directly. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of whom? Of those who believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine on them. You see, if we choose to follow Satan, our eyes are blinded and, and God's not going to just force us to turn back around the other way. Now, I do wholeheartedly believe that those who ask, seek, and knock shall receive what they're looking for. And that God, through providence, works in the lives of people who are seeking Him. I believe that. But I also believe that if you want to reject God, He has no choice but to allow you to do that. If that's your desire, as it was the scribes, and the Pharisees. Which brings us to a very interesting passage and then we'll move on. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> you had a very good opportunity to put the, the clock in a much more easily visible position. It's under the eave. And I'm a tall... Tony's not quite this tall, so maybe it's much easier to see. <laughs> you know, I have an excuse. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, a passage that has confounded many people on, on the surface at least... And again, this is related to Jesus' use in parables and what He was hoping to accomplish. Verse 10, "...with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved." If you want to understand verse 11, you have to include verse 10. These people desired not to be saved. They didn't receive the love of the truth. And for this cause, verse 11, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. God will allow the floodgates of sin to open in their lives if they make the choice that they do not want to receive God. God is not going to stand in the way of their choice to fully accept sin as a lifestyle. But just in case we believe that maybe God is forcing them into sin, He restates in verse 12 that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's not about God saying, I want you to be lost, and you to be saved, and you to be lost, and you to be saved. It's about me deciding, I want to follow God, and Him opening the doors of opportunity. Or me deciding, I don't care about God, and I want to reject Him, and those doors of opportunity closing. And that's a perfect illustration of what Jesus was trying to accomplish by speaking in parables. Now, in the time that we have left tonight, so what? What does that mean to me? Now, I don't want to minimize anything else we've said. What I want to do is bring it into focus 
as to how this can affect you and me every day, and especially right now. Number one, we need to understand that God's message is plain. Really, most of the parables are pretty plain, aren't they? I mean, you, you, you read Jesus' parable of the soils, and that's very plain the first time, but then the disciples said, explain unto us this parable, and so Jesus explained it piece by piece. How can you walk away from the parable of the soils and not understand what he's saying? The message of the gospel is plain. We have done such a phenomenal job of muddying it and making it more complex than it needs to be. But the message of the gospel is plain. You know, the weather's pretty plain, isn't it? If I walk outside and I get wet, it's raining. If I walk outside and get a sunburn, it's sunny. You know, anything more than that, you know, we're pretty much getting too complex for our own good. But the gospel is plain. First John 5 and verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not grievous. They're not hard to undertake. They're not burdensome. So many people think it's just too difficult to do. It's just too difficult to understand. The saving message of the gospel is not complex. It's not difficult. I wish that we could just start right now and just erase all of the centuries of misinformation that have come about as a result of people misteaching and misapplying the Word of God. And then we just handed out Bibles to everybody. And we started from scratch. I'll never forget when I walked into a Bible study with Brother Preston Silcox at the Bethel Congregation in Martin, Tennessee. I was 21 years old. And I didn't know a thing about religion. Good, bad, or indifferent. And when that series of studies was done, he said it was the easiest study he'd ever done. Why? I didn't know all of the misinformation. When he showed me a passage in Scripture that said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, sounds pretty plain to me. But there's so much misinformation. There, there's so many things that can confuse so many people. But those things aren't rooted and grounded in the Word of God. God told Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2 and verse 2, write it down and make it plain. That, 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 every preacher ought to have that you know, imprinted somewhere. <laughs> write it down and make it plain. Isn't that our job after all? As a Bible class teacher, isn't that your job? Write it down and make it plain. Seems like the more we know about the Bible, the more we want to talk about the complex and the... Uh, the the deep water issues. Let's not forget to write it down and make it plain. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, Ezra the scribe stood before the people, stood on a, on a pulpit or at a pulpit in a raised situation, not because he was greater than the people, but so that they could hear him. And he read from the Word of God. And the text says in verse 8 that he gave the sense that they might understand the reading. Ezra made it plain. And the gospel message, the saving message of the gospel is plain. There was a eunuch traveling in a chariot. And the Holy Spirit went to Philip and said, I want you to go and I want you to talk to that eunuch. And he was reading from Isaiah 53 and the eunuch had one very simple question. Who is being talked about in Isaiah 53? And Philip began at that same Scripture and he preached unto him Christ. 
I dare say that wasn't a very complex discussion. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was raised on the third day. He ascended into heaven. And if you want to be saved, you need to be buried with Him in baptism. Now, I'm not certain that's word for word how it went. I know earlier when he preached to the Samaritans, what did he talk about? He talked about the name of Jesus Christ. He talked about the kingdom. And when they heard that, what happened? They were baptized. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward stuff. God's message is plain. May I kindly say then that a lack of understanding can only be a lack of effort on my part. Now I'm not saying that those people who are steeped in denominational doctrine, who have been, been loaded with burden after burden of misinformation, that it's not difficult to come out from under that. I understand it is. But there are so many of us as Christians, and, and the reason that I became a preacher was for this very reason. I didn't know what I didn't know, and I wanted to know it. But we don't have to be preachers to know the saving message of the Gospel. To know God's plan of salvation, and to navigate the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11-14, through 14, we read just how disappointed the Hebrews writer was at those first century Christians who had not progressed. In verse 11, he says, I want to talk to you about these weightier issues. But he says, I can't because you're dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, or become such as have need of milk, not of strong meat. Everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. For he's a babe. But strong meat belongeth unto those who are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The older I get, the more important exercise is. And I realize that. As Christians, do we understand just how important it is to understand God's Word? To be able to make it plain for ourselves and make it plain for others. Number two, <clears throat> just as in the time of Jesus in speaking in parables, there are generally two reactions. And they're very well illustrated by two gospel sermons contained in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, you, you remember that the Apostle Peter, when he opened up the doors to the church, he, he talked about David, he referenced Joel before that, and then it all came to a head when he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that that same Jesus whom you have crucified hath been made Lord and Christ. Notice what he said. You crucified the Christ. How would you respond to that? How do you like being told you're wrong? Husbands? You know, you got used to it. The rest of them. I'm just joking. How do you like being told you're wrong? How would you like it if you were told you just killed, murdered the Messiah. What did they do? They were pricked in their heart and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized. They are baptized. Added to the New Testament church. Fast forward to Acts chapter 7. Verse 51, Stephen there says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Little bit different wording, but essentially says the same thing. Doing the very same thing the forefathers did, 
and it led to a crucifixion of the Son of God. And the text goes on to say they were cut to the heart. Same message. Similar delivery. Similar time frame. Similar audience. Two polar opposite reactions. The Gospel message generally elicits one of those two reactions. Which brings us to number three and final. If I resist the gospel message long enough, it will result in the calluses and the hardened hearts that you see in the scribes and Pharisees. And the same way that they so inexplicably rejected the message of Jesus, we'll do it too. Have you ever seen someone who you know, you know they know what they need? You completely and totally understand that they know. And yet they don't do it. And time goes by. Time goes by. And time goes by. And they become less and less responsive. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves in the same condition as the scribes and Pharisees. Wholly unresponsive to the saving message of God. This evening, what about you? Jesus taught in parables. And His goal was to reach those who desired to hear the message. This evening, if you desire to hear the message, the message is plain. You have a Savior who loves you. And there can be no question about it. He left heaven. And He came to earth for the sole purpose of saving people who would kill Him. He came into His own and His own received Him not. And that love that's demonstrated so many years ago still echoes right now for you and me. The same opportunities that were present in Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 7 are present for you and me right now. And if you're not a Christian, this is your opportunity and it could be your last. To believe the message of the Gospel. To repent of your sins, that prodigal son who came to himself and got up and went to his father. You can mimic that in coming to yourself, changing your life as he did, and coming to God. Confessing the name of Christ. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And burying the old man of sin in a watery grave. And being raised to walk in newness of life. Tony doesn't practice body slam evangelism and neither do I. But so often the hardest ones to remove from the pews and to get up on the front seat are the Christians who have gone back to a life. Because that heart has become calloused. It's become hardened by all of those sermons they've heard and ignored. And all of those family and friends who have tried their best to bring them back. I hope tonight we can break through the calluses. And that if you're here and you are not 
faithful to God. You've done the things we just mentioned, but you've strayed. I hope that you don't allow the Gospel message to harden you even more and callous you even deeper. But I hope that you accept the saving message of the Gospel again. I pray the Gospel will be restored as together we stand and sing.